0: Our scripture is John eleven thirty to 46, that they may believe that you sent me. And for context, we'll read starting at verse one, one to 46. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples, therefore, said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus, therefore, said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. uh, Mary, therefore, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary still sat in the house. Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, that is, he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then, who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, Behold how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I knew that you hear me always. But because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He who had died came forth bound hand and foot, With wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you to encourage us by this word to know your power, to know your love and grace toward us, your faithfulness to us, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what we have before us, no matter what it is that is afflicting us, may we have strong encouragement in you. May we increase in faith and may those among us who do not believe, may you grant them faith and repentance, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. In the name of Christ, we ask. Amen. Christ now, in this passage, is raising Lazarus up from the dead. And why, though, is he doing it this way? Why is he delaying, waiting for Lazarus to die, and even Lazarus to be in the tomb for four days? Why? Well, He says so clearly that it is for the glory of God and He also says that you may believe that the Father sent Him for these reasons. Even though to reach that goal of increase in faith and to reach the goal of glorifying God, the means of reaching those two good goals, the means is affliction. And that's okay. That's the purpose that he's trying to show us here. It's okay to suffer hardship in order to increase in faith and to ultimately glorify God. We also note from this that Lazarus is a precursor, an introduction to the resurrection of Christ, which will happen uh, eventually in the book of John. Lazarus, if God could do this with Lazarus, he will certainly do it with Christ. And Lazarus is a foretaste of what all of us will experience if we believe in Jesus Christ. We pick it up at verse 30. First, we'll review this and explain it, and then we'll gather and learn a few lessons from it. Verse 30. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Christ was there awaiting Mary to get there because Martha returned to the house, secretly told Mary when she's in the house with the other Jews, consoling her, comforting her upon the death of her brother. So then Jesus waits there for Mary to reach there. Verse 31, the Jews then who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. It's natural for us, when we are thinking about the deceased, especially those recently deceased, if they are local to us, to go and visit the tomb, to go visit the grave, to go visit the place, so that we might contemplate the life of our loved one, the deceased there. And they thought, the Jews thought, that that's where Mary was going. The Jews did that, many people do that. Sometimes people do it excessively. In this case, I don't believe that Mary and Martha are excessive in the way that we often see it today when people are grieving the loss of their loved one. There is a right place for grieving. We must grieve, but we should not grieve as those who have no hope. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen to 18, yes, we have sorrow, yes, we have grief, and we should whenever we lose a loved one. But it should not be so, um, so discouraging and so demoralizing to us that we cannot function, we cannot live the life that we need to live as survivors, the survivors of the deceased. We need to press on. In this case, it's natural for the Jews to think that that's where Mary went. But Mary wasn't going there. She is going there because secretly, remember, in verse 28, Martha told Mary that the teacher, Christ, was calling for her so that she needed to go and meet him where Martha had already met him. 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She falls at his feet, when she falls at his feet, this is because she is honoring him and even worshiping him, which worship would not be uncalled for. For example, even the man healed of his blindness worshiped Christ when he believed in Christ in John nine thirty-eight, and he worshiped him. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Mary, in this way, is worshiping Christ or at least showing great honor to him, bowing at his feet. She does express some faith, not full faith, but some faith because she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We know that this is also what Martha said in verse 21. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus in 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. This is the faith of Martha and Mary. They know that if Christ were there, Christ could have prevented Lazarus' death. They know that. However, they don't have enough faith to say you could have healed him when you heard about him four days ago or five days ago or ten days ago, whenever you heard about him. You don't have to be local to the sick man to heal the sick man. They know that about him. They didn't say it like that, so they needed some more faith to believe that way. But also, they don't understand Jesus' intention. They know he delayed. But why did he delay They didn't ask that question. They didn't contemplate that question. Why did Jesus delay? Does Jesus have something greater involved in my life because he delayed? They didn't ask that question. They eventually find out the reason. But they didn't ask that and derive some comfort from that. Further, 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Here in this verse 33 and in verse 38, it says, Jesus therefore, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb to raise Lazarus, right? So he's deeply moved in 33 and 38 and he sees them weeping in 33, and then Jesus himself weeps in 35. Jesus wept. That is the famous shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Well, why did Jesus have a deep moving of the spirit in him, and was he weeping and troubled? Was he because he was identifying with the human condition? Or was he upset, was he irritated and angry at the people for not having faith? Some commentators take it one way and some the other. It seems that the better way to take it is to take it that Jesus was weeping according to the grief of the people. He was deeply moved. He was weeping and even troubled because of the condition of the people that he, being a man yet perfect, a, a holy and perfect undefiled man never sinned, he was identifying in his human nature with the human condition of sorrow at the loss of a loved one, at the sorrow of death, the pain of death and the grief associated with death. This is why Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and weeping and troubled. He identified with human nature. Now, the scriptures all over, but even right here in John 11, we have both a manifestation and explanation of Jesus' divine nature and his human nature without sin. His divine nature and his perfect humanity without sin. We have both at work right here. At this point, at this juncture in 33 to 38, we have his human nature. He is grieving with those who have lost their loved one. That's his human nature. We know according to Luke 252, Luke 252, he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Luke 252. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. He grew in that way, in the human nature, human sense of the word. Uh, He had need of sleep. He had need to eat and drink. He had that human nature. He did not eat too much or drink too much. They accused him of drunkenness, but he... Drank wine, yet he never was drunk, right? He ate meat, but he was never a glutton. So he had the human condition, but not the sin that we all have, the common sin that we all have. He didn't have that. And even here, he's not sinfully weeping or anything else here. He's not sinfully doing that. He is pure, holy, undefiled, innocent, guilt free in every way. That's Jesus. That's the human part. But then the divine part we see in him raising Christ up from the dead. The divine part in John is when he says that he is the good shepherd. He lays down his life on his own initiative and he takes it up on his own initiative. John ten eighteen. He says in John 2, 18 to 22, 2, John 2, 18, 22, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He says in John 8:58 before Abraham was I am. These are evidences, these are declarations of his deity, his divine nature. <clears throat> Perfectly he had the two in one person. One person with two natures. That's Jesus Christ. The Jews in verse 36, the Jews who come to console Martha and Mary, 36. So the Jews were saying, behold how he loved him. Some of the Jews respond like that. They see the genuine, the sincere, authentic love Jesus had for Lazarus and still has for Lazarus. They see that. They understand it. That kind of genuine love. The Jews, some of the Jews believe that. But not all of them. We'll notice two reactions. Two reactions in 36 to 37, and also two reactions in 45 to 46. In 36, a good reaction, they notice how much Christ loved Lazarus. But in 37, but some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? This is said in ridicule. This is said in mockery. This is said in unbelief and skepticism. Yes, they know he healed a blind man. And now they're saying, couldn't he have been here? Couldn't he have done this? Why didn't he do it? He doesn't care. He doesn't have the power. God's favor is not with him. That's the sinful, unbelieving, skeptical attitude they have against Christ. Of course he has had the power, has the power, and can do whatever he wants. 38. Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. He continues in this grief, deeply moved within, and now comes to the tomb. Naturally, when he comes to the tomb, the others come to the tomb. And that's what we pick, how we pick it up in 38 to 46. They all come to the tomb because Jesus went from the meeting place where Mary met him to the tomb. And remember, all of this is nearby within walking distance. They could all do that within the same day. Verse 38. Now, it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. It was a cave. A cave, a cave such as would be on a hillside or a mountainside, and then you would have to find a large stone, large enough to be moved by a few individuals, usually a few men, who would be able to move it and close up the opening of the cave. That's what we have in verse 38. Now, why a cave? Why a cave? We have the first instance of this in Genesis chapter 23, with Abraham, in Genesis 23 with Abraham in the land of Canaan, he purchased a field and he purchased in that field a cave to be able to bury his wife, Sarah. He purchased one and he buried her there. And then in Genesis 48, we read that others of the patriarchs and matriarchs were buried in that same cave. So from Abraham's time, this custom of finding a cave, that's the earliest evidence we have in Scripture. Not that it is a restriction and the only way to bury the deceased. That's not the only way to bury our dead in a cave, but the cave became one of the ideal or models to be one to replicate the faith of Abraham. Now, in replicating the faith of Abraham, in repeating and emulating the faith of Abraham, what are they also signifying by burial, whether in the cave or in the ground, underground? What are they signifying? What are they expressing about their faith? They believe in resurrection. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God who buried Moses in, in Deuteronomy 34, they all believe in resurrection. That's why Christians and Jews bury. They bury because they believe in resurrection. The religions of the world, the false religions of the world that don't bury their dead, they don't believe in resurrection. They believe in transmigration of the soul or reincarnation of the soul, that our souls come back into the world either as another human or as an animal or insect, a rodent, whatever. We come back in the world like that but not in the Bible. The Bible does not teach transmigration of soul. It teaches resurrection of souls, both of the righteous and of the wicked. This Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they believed in resurrection. Remember, we saw this in verse 24. Martha, little old Martha, the woman Martha, the one who nobody would know about unless the Bible had mentioned her, right? Martha said to him in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And we saw from that passage that there's evidence, plenty of evidence in the Old Testament for the belief in the resurrection of the dead. And even that women, women in the new and women in the old, not just the priests, not just the pastors and the prophets, but women and insignificant women believed in the resurrection of the dead, which means it's proof that it was a common belief and a common teaching among the people based on scripture. And there is plenty of Old Testament evidence for belief in the resurrection of the dead. Further, we pick it up at verse 39. Jesus said, remove the stone. Why would Jesus say, remove the stone? Why would Jesus just not say the word? He's about to say the word, Lazarus, come forth. Why did he not say the word to have the stone removed? Because of what's about to follow. Who is there and what is about to follow? Who is there? Mary, Martha, and the Jews, correct? And then what will the Jews do? They will go back and report in Jerusalem to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, about what happened, correct? So the Jews need to have evidence. They need to have eyewitness and nose evidence. We'll see that in a moment. Eyewitness evidence, use their very eyes and also use their noses to prove and to show forth the fact that Lazarus was actually dead for four days. Therefore, his corpse would have had a stench, a bad odor coming from his corpse, they would have had to see it and smell it and then be able to go and tell and report that to others. First, believe themselves and then report to others. So Jesus says, remove the stone so that those men among the Jews would go there and experience this very thing. But Martha in 39 says, Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, Lord, by this time, there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. He has been dead four days. Your Bible will not have the words has been dead if you use the New American Standard Bible. It will have it in italics because in the original language, the words dead aren't there. However, we know he's dead. We know he's dead, and he's been in the tomb four days according to 11.17. 11.17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. He was already in the tomb four days. That means he was dead. And the custom among the Jews and many other peoples of the world is to bury their dead the same day that they die. Bury their dead the same day of their death. The custom of embalming and preserving the body for two or three or more days is not a very common custom as burying on the day of the death. Once they have confirmation that their loved one is deceased, they bury that day. That's typically what happens, not usually days later. So if he had been in the tomb for four days... And Martha is saying that there's going to be a stench, there will be a stench, a bad smell, because of that, he was there for four days. That's indisputable, according to the evidence here. He had been dead four days. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Didn't he say that? Yes. He encouraged her earlier, He encouraged her earlier. He has been encouraging them to have faith. And if their faith perseveres, they will see the glory of God. In this case, the glory of God is the powerful work of God to his glory. The work of a miracle to the glory of God. That's what he means by, you will see the glory of God. You will see his glorious power at work to raise him up. And then you will praise him glorify Him, and thank Him. If you believe. Remember, He's been encouraging them to have more faith. Verse 15, 11 15. I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to Him. There He's telling His disciples, and now in verse 40, and earlier telling Martha. If you believe you will see the glory of God. Or earlier in 23, your brother shall rise again. He meant it both now and on the day of resurrection, but she didn't understand it that way. Both now and the day of resurrection. 41. And so they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I knew that you hear me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you sent me. First thing, Jesus, after they removed the stone, now the evidence is there. Everybody knows we see inside a corpse. We see inside a dead body and we also smell that he has been dead four days. We know the smell of a corpse. We know that. There's no doubt about it. Now it's the perfect time. Now that he has arranged for the situation, the perfect time to pray to God and to perform the miracle. First, the prayer. Father, I thank you that you heard me. I thank you. He thanks God. He knows that whenever he prays, God hears him. So he thanks God. Even though the answer to the prayer has not yet happened, he thanks God in prayer because he trusts the will of God, which is what also we should do. When we trust the will of God in our life, we will begin our prayer with thanksgiving. Whenever we become Christians... What happens to our prayers? They are full of thankfulness. And often we start the prayer by saying, thank you, Lord, and for such and such, right? We say thank you when we start our prayers. And that should be the case. That was the case with Christ here. And he has, has full assurance that you heard me. You heard me. Because... He is the beloved son. The son can petition the father and the father will answer him because the father loves the son. Further, verse 42, and I knew that you hear me always, which means Jesus had permanent trust in the father as a human, as a man. He had permanent trust, permanent confidence, permanent faith in the father. He did not ever have an ounce or a moment of unbelief. Never for a single moment of unbelief. Christ never did. He always believed the Father hears Him, loves Him, and has the best interest of Christ in mind. Then, why does Christ display His work publicly? Why is it necessary that he is not a completely private individual? Why is it that he sometimes performs miracles in front of many people? Why is it sometimes that he prays in front of many people and prays in this way? Why is it that he arranged for the situation four days later with all the people gathered there at the cave tomb to see what is about to happen? Why did he do it that way? Because of the people standing around, I said it, because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you sent me. The purpose is to produce faith in the onlookers, to produce faith in all of the observers, that they might believe that the Father sent the Son into the world. The goal is conversion. Faith, repentance, belief in the gospel, belief in Jesus himself. That is the goal. 43, the miracle itself. He who had dot. I'm sorry, 43, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. After he prayed and said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Why would He cry out with a loud voice? So that everyone there assembled could hear clearly that it came from Christ, not from something else or someone else, that it came actually from Christ. The moment Christ cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth, then the miracle happened. For them to know that it actually happened from the mouth of Christ, the word of Christ. It happened that way. Also, whenever Christ cries out, speaks loudly, it reminds us of the loud, thunderous voice of God in, say, at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 and 20. God's thunderous voice so that When God speaks, everyone should pay attention. Everyone should listen. No one should be twiddling his thumbs, wishing he were somewhere else. Whenever God speaks, they have to have the fear of God, the trembling of God in them to listen to exactly what God is saying. To know the source and to know the mighty power and holiness of God. For these reasons, he speaks loudly like this. He cries out with a loud voice. Then Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, the specific dead one. Lazarus, come forth. That's all he said. That's all it took. It didn't take strenuous effort. It didn't take him doing anything there it didn't take him walking around somewhere, um, praying, beating himself. It didn't take anything like that. It didn't take him dancing in some kind of mystical dance. It didn't take any kind of thing like that. It was simply his word, which is a reminder of the powerful word of God, such as in Genesis chapter 1, 1 verse 3. And, the, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. He said, let there be light. And there was light. The moment he said it, it was the moment it happened. That's how powerful God is. And Christ is here. Did it happen? Yes, 44. He who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The one who had died, John Makes it explicit again. He had died. He had died four days ago. He came forth. He came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings. The corpse came forth, but it was bound in the hands and in the foot with wrappings. The whole body was wrapped around. Not just the hands and the feet wrapped, but the whole body, what, that was the practice, to wrap the whole body, including the hands and the feet, so that it's like this, touching the body, hands and feet touching the body, uh, touching each other, all together and wrapped around. So, and that's the whole body, and then even the face with a separate cloth, the face cloth, was wrapped around the face. That's the typical way the way that it is described here, that the Jews would bury their dead. So, what does it prove? How in the world could Lazarus stand up if he was wrapped that way? How is it that he would have any sense of standing up in the right direction if his whole face is covered? How would he know anything unless it's a miracle? And everyone there saw that miracle. And it was many people because it says in verse 45, many, many, many people were there. Many people witnessed this, that he was raised up like this. It had to be a miracle. Not only that, but Jesus commanded for him to be unbound and to let him go, which requires what? It requires the onlookers who are there, to go there to Lazarus to actually unwrap him and release him, to let him go. And when they do that, he would stop stinking. And he would be alive, and he would be able to walk and walk away from the cave, right? All of that they would have experienced by touching him, by touching him, actually touching him, bound up in this way. So this was a certain convincing miracle. So, so much of a miracle that we read in chapter 12, 12, 9 to 11. Chapter 12, 9 to 11. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Why? Because on on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. It was such a miracle that now the chief priests want to put Lazarus to death also Jesus and Lazarus, both to death. They want to get rid of both of them so that no one believes in them anymore, their testimony anymore. Verse 45, 1145. Many, therefore, the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. They believed in Christ when they saw this. Many of them did. That means that there was some good reaction. Many believed because they saw exactly what happened. That's good. That's good. However, 46, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Others of them did not have faith. Others of them still had a hard heart. They were skeptical of Christ. They saw a literal resurrection happen before their very eyes, but it did not move them to repentance and faith. It didn't move them. It made them continue in unbelief and they spread the unbelief to the Pharisees. They can't resist. They just can't keep it to themselves. They have to spread unbelief. Even unbelievers are evangelistic in the wrong way. So having reviewed this, let's emphasize a couple of points. One point has to do with God putting us through afflictions on purpose and it's okay and it's good for us. God puts us through afflictions on purpose and it's okay and good for us. Isaiah 43, Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah 43, verse 1, verses 1 to 7. 43, 1. Here he addresses the redeemed. But now, thus says the Lord, Your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. He calls on us not to fear, not to fear. He tells us that we are called by name. He tells us in verse one, you are mine. We belong to him. If we belong to him, then don't worry. Don't fret. It'll all work out. He will take care of us. Whether we go through waters, now who went through waters literally and were safe? The children of Israel, right? They crossed the Red Sea. And even at other times, Elijah and Elisha and Joshua with the people crossed the Jordan River, the river's did not overwhelm them. And even the waters of the great flood in the days of Noah did not overcome Noah. Right? So God will take care of us no matter what our circumstances are. Whether it's literal water or figurative water, the troubles of our life, they will not overwhelm us. Nor will fire. Who walked through fire without harm? It was the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were thrown into fire, and the fire did not harm them, did not consume them. But even the figurative fires, the trials of life, the troubles of life, when they are fiery against us, they will not overwhelm us. So don't worry. He says in 3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I'm your God, I'm your Savior, nobody else is. I have given up other people. He mentions these nations, which are unbelieving nations. They will be given up to destruction, but you will not be given up to destruction. Why? Because you are precious in my sight. You are precious in my sight. You are honored and I love you. This is the only place... In the whole Bible that says, I love you. Right here. In the Old Testament, where people think there is no love, Isaiah 43, 4. I love you. The only place. Yes, elsewhere, it says, I have loved you. And love is mentioned in many places. But here, these words with the present tense, I love you. Only here. Not even in the New Testament does it say I love you. So, God has His chosen ones, His elect sons and daughters from east and west that He will gather, He will bring together into one body for His glory. Verse 7. Don't worry. Furthermore, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Lest we think that that's only true in the Old Testament, No, trials, tribulations, afflictions, hardships are for the Christian in the new covenant era law of Christ. We also are to undergo them. He says in Hebrews 12, verse four, Hebrews 12, we read from 12, 13 to 13, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Discipline, scourging, This is for our good. Because God loves us, he puts us through hardships. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves us, he puts the faithful through hardship. James 1, James 1, verses 2 to 4. James 1, 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith Produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Further, in verse 12, 1 Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What should our attitude be in afflictions? He says, Joy, verse 2 all joy in the various trials. Why? Because we know that when we are tested, our faith is tested, it produces endurance and a perfect result. We become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 12 says that there is a blessing and then once we are approved by God, we receive the crown of life which He has promised to those who love Him. He loves us. We love Him. And because He loves us and we love Him, we have this promise that will occur. The crown of life for all of us. So, whenever the trials come, have faith. Increase in faith. The trials are meant to increase our faith. Now, He also not only wants us to increase in faith, he also wants us to have faith. He also wants us to have faith, which in John 11, he mentions that, that you may believe, or that they may believe that you sent me. He wants the people, the bystanders, he wants them to believe that the Father sent the Son. Which is what happened in verse forty five. Many therefore the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. And twelve eleven, because on account of him many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. The purpose of the book of John is for people to believe in Christ. He says so, why he wrote it. John twenty thirty. John twenty thirty to thirty-one. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. To say you must believe seems unnecessary. It seems like it's repetition. However, the people who hear those words, who despise those words, and they say, well, I already believe, don't tell me. I'm already a Christian, don't tell me. I was raised in a Christian family, don't tell me about that. I know what the Bible teaches, don't tell me about that. I believe Jesus died for my sins, so I don't to hear you tell me anymore. I already believe, so don't tell me anything more. That's their attitude, and sometimes their own words. Don't keep telling me to believe. Right? However... In the book of John and in Scripture, we have seen many times that the problem is everybody says he believes, everybody says he's saved, everybody says he knows God, and everybody says he's assured he's going to heaven. Everybody does. But we need to make sure, both young and old alike, we need to make sure that we truly do believe in Christ. Because we cannot, we cannot pretend, because God knows all things, we cannot pretend and we cannot assure ourselves falsely that we are saved and true believers if we're not really saved and true believers. We must definitely believe that God sent Christ into the world to save us from sin. And if He came to save us from our sins, we shouldn't love our sin anymore. And if we continue to love our sin, we do not believe in him. We do not believe. Why should we believe this? John 14:15. Do these verses describe you? John 14:15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which means, if we don't love Him, we will not keep His commandments. If we, in our own life or in the life of others, do not keep His commandments, we have no desire to keep His commandments, whatever our sins may be, we don't seek to repent of them, give them up, turn away from them, despise them, hate them, and increase in faith and godliness. If we don't do that, we don't love Christ. Even if we say we love Christ, we don't love Christ. Even if we say we know Christ, we don't know Christ. Even if we say we believe in Christ, we don't believe in Christ. If we don't keep His commandments. John 15. John 15 verse 8. 15, 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples God is glorified how that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples if we bear much fruit we prove to be his disciples to the glory of God the father but who said to say these words this to say these words will be scandalous to the average person who says, yes, I'm a Christian. Why are these words scandalous words? The words of the Lord Christ right here. Why are they scandalous words? Well, I didn't know I was supposed to live for the glory of God. Why are you telling me that, that that's so important? Well, Jesus said so, by this is my Father glorified, right? Then, that you bear much fruit. Well, who said I had to produce a lot of fruit? Yeah, I, I gave up some things, but I don't have to give up everything. And yeah, I don't, I don't go to the bar and get drunk anymore. Uh, but I won't tell you I get drunk at home. Uh, I don't go to the bar and get drunk anymore, but why are you picking on me? You, right? Even if I do have still a foul mouth, and even though I still watch pornography, and even if I still do some other things that are considered sins, I gave up that one sin, so why are you on my case? Well, Jesus says here that you bear much fruit. You have to bear much fruit, have that attitude, that desire to please God and bear much fruit. And if you, we don't bear much fruit, we cannot give ourselves confidence. It would be false confidence and also displaying it to other people and spreading the disease to other people. We should not do that. If we truly believe we must bear much fruit. And also prove to be my disciples. That's another offensive thing Jesus said right there in verse 8. How dare you say I have to prove it? Just people want to be able to say, I said it, therefore it's true. Right? I said it, therefore it's true. Today people call it self-identification. Self-identification. I self-identify as this, so that's what I am. No, no, you're not. You can self-identify as any number of things. But it doesn't make you that thing. You just can't say it and it be true of you. And in the same way here, we just can't say we're a disciple of Christ if we don't prove it. We have to prove it. Prove it. Prove it to ourselves. Prove it to others. Before God Himself, bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. We must truly believe. So, children, and adults. It doesn't matter who we are. We must truly believe and not fake it. Truly believe. Further, is it possible that many people hearing the Word of God, knowing the Word of God, seeing the goodness of God, even seeing miracles of God, walk away from God? Is that possible? Yes, it is. We saw it there in verse, uh, chapter 11, chapter 11 in verses 37 and 46. And we also saw it in chapter 12, verses 9 to 11. That these people actually saw tremendous miracles before their very eyes. They were eyewitnesses and many saw that, these miracles. Many saw many miracles. And yet... They spit at Christ, they beat him up, they eventually arrested him um, and took him to court and had sham trials and then impaled him on a cross. And he suffered like that. By the hands of men who had many testimonies to the contrary. They should not have treated Christ that way. And yet that's what people do. And that's what people will do today. Even today, there will be people who know exactly the truth of the Bible and say, I know what it says, but I refuse to believe it, I refuse to obey it, and they walk away. It happens all the time. It should not surprise us. It should cause us to have fear and trembling that we never do the same, but it should not surprise us Instead, it should cause us to, with greater fervency, preach the gospel to people and warn them never to be like that. Don't ever be that way. Always believe the word of God. The words of God are reliable, trustworthy. It's impossible for God to lie. Heaven is real. Hell is real. So believe in Jesus Christ. Let's all believe in him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.